Welcome back to Hope Silla Speaks. Just last week, Serena Williams played in what is believed to be her last Grand Slam match. She made the official announcement that she was closing the tennis chapter of her life. So the face of tennis is moving on, and many of us have taken the time to reflect what she has meant to the game and to men and women, boys and girls around the world. Serena won her first Grand Slam in 1999 at the U.S. Open. She became the first Black woman to win a major tennis championship since Althea Gibson in 1958, 41 years later. In 2002, Serena cemented herself into the tennis world by winning both the French Open and Wimbledon in the same year. Yes, we all know that she dominated the game, that she was a force to be reckoned with. But what will her lasting legacy be? Her style, her personality, the winning stats, her serve, her backhand, her interviews, or does her legacy know no bounds? Now, before we bring on somebody who has covered Serena extensively, I'd like to share my own personal opinion on what I think are the two most important things that Serena gifted us. Now, for 35 years, I have either participated, coached, or mentored young girls and boys. I have also been a professional athlete for more than half my life. Throughout meeting new teammates or speaking to young hopefuls throughout training individuals, I saw many different struggles and challenges that young men and women face. They all had different upbringings and different personal struggles, but one thing always remained the same. When a young girl was great, it was coupled with a deep sense of guilt and embarrassment. I used to be quite shocked and saddened by this reality, but I also somewhat understood it. In a world where we all want to fit in, it can be very difficult to stand out, to shine above others, to win, or to be better than our peers, friends, and teammates. When asked for my advice, I find myself often telling others to never be afraid to be great. I often tell them not to hide or lessen themselves. I lived my soccer playing career this way, knowing that I was the best in my position. I worked hard, I enjoyed winning, I hated losing, and I was confident of my place on any team. It wasn't always a popular way to be. In 2007, I was historically benched so my teammates could have a kumbaya party for their close friend and teammate. I stood up for my belief in my ability, my confidence never rattled. I was shunned by the media, by the soccer world, by my employers by teammates. In 2016, I called our opponents cowards for playing a defensive-minded match. I lost my job. Now, I'm often told that I was ahead of the curve or the tip of the spear. I played in an era where we were expected to be grateful. And when I say we, I mean we as female athletes. We were often treated less than our male counterparts and certainly we were supposed to be quiet and humble. To this day, I've not been fully celebrated for my personal dominance. Times have changed. Serena, especially early in her tennis playing career, had tensions with the organizers of tennis as well as the fans. Whether it was her over-the-top outfits, her roaring screams that bucked the traditions of the genteel female tennis player, 
or the fact that she brought a physicality to the sport that was previously unseen. But with the right marketing, the right timing, a time when companies like Nike were forced by popular culture to celebrate women athletes, and of course, by being a dominating figure, Serena Williams was able to give the world what I think is one of the greatest legacies. Showing others that it's okay to be unapologetically great. And she got the big send-off party and the celebration she is deserving of. Serena was unapologetic. She grunted, she cursed, she defied the tennis etiquette. She had unshakable confidence. She believed in herself always. And she never showed remorse when she continuously overpowered and outperformed her opponents. This unwavering athlete showed and ultimately taught others who aspire to greatness to never shy away from it. This gift, I believe, is a priceless legacy. She was a beneficiary of the times and she took full advantage. She showed us that it's okay to give oneself permission to win, the permission to be confident, the permission to even be upset after losing, that it's okay to permit oneself to overpower and destroy our opponents. And when I speak about overpowering her opponents, I mean it in every sense. She also showed the world that it's okay for girls and women to have muscles. I don't think I have ever heard of a male athlete being criticized for having an athletic body. She has taken these criticisms and said, fuck everybody, I'll do it my way. And I don't owe anybody a thing. Now, the second most lasting legacy, one I believe will have an ever evolving effect on tennis is her ability to grow and popularize the sport. She is responsible for the growth of the game. Now tennis has grown incredibly, but not just in overall participation, the growth is coming disproportionately from youth, Hispanic, black and African-American populations. She carved out a hard fought lane for young black and brown girls. She will have changed the lives of many because of her domination as a black woman in the tennis world. Lastly, and just to reminisce, I had the privilege to watch Serena play on a few occasions. I have met her around California at different events, and I did a Vogue photo shoot with her in Miami. To my surprise, Serena, one who tends to be seen as a very serious and intimidating woman, I found to actually be quite quirky, funny even at times, even immature. We tend to see her only as a tennis star, but let's not forget the youth that she carries in her. The faces that we see on the television isn't always the mask one wears elsewhere. And I hope she now has more time on her hands to show the world the totality of her uniqueness. And about that photo shoot, <laughs> and I share this just because it is genuinely funny to me when I think back on it. I often am told that I look imposing and intimidating in goal and on TV. Then when people meet me in person, they always comment that they thought I was six foot tall and are shocked at how disarming and even shy I am in person. Serena is absolutely an imposing physical woman. That's why I laughed my ass off when I saw the cover of Vogue in 2012. Ryan Lochte, Serena, and me somehow all looked the same size. <laughs> Please welcome 
John Wertheim. John is an award-winning writer, executive editor, and senior writer for Sports Illustrated. He is also the author of 10 books, including Venus Envy, a book about Venus Williams and the women's pro tennis circuit, and Strokes of Genius, Federer, Nadal, and the greatest match ever played. He has covered Serena over the course of her entire career. Thank you for being here on Hope Solo Speaks, John. Um, I truly can't think of a better person to speak of Serena's career and her legacy. Um, Now to set the scene and to really educate us tennis novices, I was hoping that you could start by walking us through the culture of tennis today and really how much it has changed over time. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up because I would say the culture of tennis today is very different than the culture of tennis when Serena Williams entered in in the mid-90s and the late 90s. And I think that's really where she's made an impact. I mean, the the sport is played differently. The fans look different. The presentation is different. And I think Venus and Serena get an awful lot of credit for that. So, I mean, it's just, I I still say this is the most remarkable sports story. It's kind of, we've known about Venus and Serena for 25 years. They've made movies about it. It's not news. But I think when people step back and say, you know, I I would say, wait, wait a second. LeBron's younger brother is even better than LeBron. Um, the fact that you have basically the, the two best players of the last 25 years are sisters in this global sport that's played everywhere. And in the process, they've changed the game. They've changed fashion. They've changed the way the media covers the sport. It's really this tremendous impact. And one thing that was nice about, we'll kind of jump ahead here, but one nice one thing that I think was really nice about this U.S. Open was Everyone let Serena know how appreciated she was, the fans, the other players, the media. I mean, how often, whether it's your sport, Hope, or whether it's, you know, all these Bill Russell tributes when everybody was sort of mournful that it's too bad he didn't get this kind of credit when he was playing or Hank Aaron. We have this all the time in sports that we sort of don't know how good we have it. And with Serena, it's the opposite. There was this full recognition that she was this absolutely transformational figure. And that's why she got the celebration she did. Absolutely. And and you're right. You know, I did want to talk about that later on. Um, just how not a lot of great athletes get that while they're still playing in their careers, while they're not celebrated until way later. And I think it's a little bit of um, a societal thing, a little bit. We, we regret it later on as a society. But here Serena is the complete opposite, as you said. And she had a true celebration while her career is still going on. And it was it was touching and and not many greats really get to experience this. Now, is this something unique and special to Serena Um, or is this really kind of a shift in how we're going to celebrate other athletes as well? It's a great question. I mean, I think some of it helps when you can, uh, you know, sort of like Tom Brady, you you, you play for 25 years. I mean, Steffi Graf stepped away when she was 30 years old. Right. I mean, John McEnroe didn't win a major after he was 25. And here's Serena. 25 years into this still contending. So I think that helped. But I think, you know, going back to your first question about the tennis culture, um, there wasn't a lot of sort of instant warmth. I mean, it took a while for the story to get going and there was sort of friction from the tennis establishment, friction from the media, the Williams family, probably, you know, there was some, probably some friction on their side as well. And I think that, um, you know, I, I think that part of this was, I, I don't want to say guilt, but sort of a, you know, you you were right, we were wrong. So I think that 
sort of may have impacted the story as well. But um, no, I, I think it's maybe it's something that fans are recognizing that too often we have these athletes and we're always looking for the next big thing or athletes in their final act aren't necessarily successful, right? I mean, uh, even LeBron, but you know, you, you, I'm just trying to go to you, Albert Pujols. I mean, pick an athlete in the last few years, they're not at their most competitive. So maybe that has something to do with it. But I think with Serena, there was this real recognition of we are never going to see another athlete like this again. And whether it's, she's a mom, she's in her forties, it's been 25 years of excellence. It really came together nicely in a way that doesn't often, doesn't often happen in sports. Yeah, of course. Now, I, I do want to get back into that, but I want to go back to the beginning because um, from everything I know about playing tennis, you know, I grew up playing soccer, but we would also, we, we would travel to, I think it was Boca Raton where the Voluntary Tennis Academy was. That's what I remember how players had to begin their young tennis careers, um, either going to the Voluntary Tennis Academy or having high profile personal trainers that tend to be very expensive. So I'm curious, you know, of course, when Serena and Venus started their careers, but also now, is there an affordable pathway for our youth who have big dreams and want to pursue a tennis career? Is there an affordable pathway? Yeah, and I think I think it's because of them. And I think you're, you're absolutely right. That 25 years ago, 30 years ago, here's what you do if you want to be successful in tennis. You play junior tennis. You go to one of these academies. Maybe you're lucky enough to get a scholarship. Other families go into debt. And all of a sudden, you've got this, this African-American man in Compton, and he's got a shopping cart filled with balls, and he's reading about tennis and books at night. And he doesn't want his kids to play junior tennis because that's how you burn out. It was so, it's like saying, I want to get to the NBA, but I'm going to put up a trampoline in my backyard. I mean, it was so different. And I think largely because of Venus and Serena, players now and families now are realizing, A, you don't necessarily need a lot of money. B, there's no one right way to do it. And I think it's worldwide. I mean, you look at the players today, the top players, and, you know, Naomi Osaka did not grow up wealthy. She has a you know, Haitian father and a Japanese mother, and they did things very differently. Novak Djokovic did not grow up wealthy. His parents owned, you know, a restaurant, a pizza place in the middle of Serbia. And I think that that's one thing that's been lost on the Williams sisters is they're a lot more you know, there's a lot more diversity in the stands. There are a lot more diverse players. You know, Coco Goff, who just played uh, and, and lost yesterday, is sort of the, the heir apparent to the Williams sisters. But I think beyond that, they've really proven that you don't need a country club. You don't need tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars to go to an academy. You don't need sort of the traditional path. There are different ways to get to the top of the sport. And I think it's really healthy. I think it's really encouraging. And I also think that. They've shown you can play till your 40s. Suddenly, tennis looks like a pretty good investment, even if you're going to look at this crassly as, as economics. If you can get 20, 25 years out of one of these careers instead of the you know six or eight you used to be able to, it's a lot more appealing to, to take a young athlete and say, hey, instead of basketball or soccer, why don't you try this tennis? Because you can still be competitive when you're 41 years old. Serena and, and Venus, of course, they obviously had a lasting impact on the sport. Um, and the numbers I've recently been given is that um, the U.S. Open is seeing record attendance, of course, with ratings and merchandise sales, uh, but also the soaring participation rate. So in two years and between 2019 to 20, 
21, there were 5 million new players added and 2.3 million junior players. Now, I believe that this is directly influenced by Serena. And those are pretty incredible numbers to the growth of the sport right now. Yeah, I, I think initially there was some, well, you know, tennis was a great sport in COVID, right? If you could play it outdoors and you're 70 feet apart from the other person. But those numbers have held up, which tells me that it wasn't just this blip when, you know, tennis was a socially distant sport. Um, but no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think it's no, um, I think there's there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of correlation there. And I also think people are realizing that, you know, like any sport, if you want to do traveling and, you know, I mean, the difference between tennis is it's individual, right? So if I'm on an AAU team or if I'm on a traveling soccer team, it's not cheap, but at least we're all sort of economizing and pooling and we're all putting in for vans and hotels with tennis. It's all individual, but to actually get started playing tennis, I mean, you can get a racket for, you know, for, for 75 bucks, a can of balls, it's like $3 or $4. You play at a high school, you play at a park. I mean, I think one thing the Williams sisters really did was show that this sport is accessible. And yeah, the travel around the world costs a lot of money. But if you want to go out and buy a racket and balls, it's not like golf, right? I mean, you don't, you don't need $1,000 set of clubs and a golf club membership. You can go, go to a local park and you and I will each put in two bucks for the balls and we're good for the next 90 minutes. Well, so because of these participation rates and how they have really skyrocketed, um, have you seen that there's more parity in tennis today than in previous years? Yeah. I mean, I think that um, part of it is just Serena won 23 majors, which is just insane. So I think that um, almost by definition of having her not playing now, everybody's sort of like, oh, it's my turn now. So I think we're going to see much more open fields. But I also think that, you know, the, the competition is really tight. And I think we're, we're talking about the U.S. And, and I'm talking in terms of dollars and, you know, Boca and academies and colleges. But I think the other thing the Williams sisters did was show people everywhere. So there I mean, there, there's, you know, one of the women remaining in the U.S. Open is from Tunisia. I mean, 25 years ago, there were no Tunisian players. You know, Novak Djokovic is from Serbia. There, there weren't a lot of Serbian players. Uh, it's, it's, I think one of the reasons why there's parody is just they play this sport everywhere now. And it's not like it used to be where you had a couple of hotbed countries. Now it's, you know, all, all six continents and they're, they're, they're Chinese players. I mean, it's, I think one of the reasons there's parody is just because they become this global sport. So I don't know if you saw the interview that Margaret Court did, but for those of you who don't know, Margaret Court is one of the greatest tennis players in history with 24 grand slams. But earlier this week, she actually made a comment that, Tennis is easier in this era because when she played, they didn't have things like psychologists. Um, they didn't even have traveling coaches sometimes. Um, the travel was longer. They didn't get time off and they weren't allowed to travel with friends and family. So she actually made the comment that in this era, Serena Williams era, that tennis is, is easier. I found that quite astonishing. Um, Margaret Court was a very accomplished tennis player. She's also a very accomplished sort of bitter old uh, woman who's (laughs) homophobic, borderline racist. And uh, no, I mean, Margaret Court is sort of, that's the woman with 24 majors who Serena was trying to catch. Um, Margaret Court won most of her majors at a time when they played tennis in much fewer countries. The fields at the tournaments were smaller. 
She won a lot of Australian Opens when there weren't even players outside Australia in the draw. Um, Serena Williams won her tournament with 127 other players in the draw. Margaret Court sometimes played when there were 32. I mean, some of it is sort of apples and oranges. Some of it is a bitter woman trying to protect, uh, you know, she, she has a vested interest in this. But I, I think there's no question that tennis is harder now. And I think that it's more physically demanding. It's played everywhere. Again, I mean, Serena, look at who she's competing against. And so her first opponent, I think, was from Montenegro. And her next opponent was from Estonia. And then she ended up losing to a woman who was born in Croatia and lives in Australia. Um, when Margaret Cork played, you basically came from one of three countries. And yeah, I mean, sure, Serena Williams has a big team and she can fly privately and there's sort of inherent advantages there. But I think that, um, you know, Margaret Court is um, a a bitter and not particularly generous woman. And uh, I, I can't imagine all things being equal. I mean, I think what Serena does is a lot, but what Serena did to get her 23 majors is a lot more impressive than what Margaret Court did to get her 24. How's that for a hot take? Yeah, that's amazing. But also as as athletes, you know, and as we progress in every sport, you you see the progression. I mean, athletes, they tend to get better. They tend to get stronger. They tend to get faster. Perhaps that is why there's more parity now. But the athletes, I mean, that records are meant to be broken. That's what I've always said. Because the athletes are getting better and because they do have more, you know, mental health support, uh, psychologists, uh, probably better nutritionists than we had decades ago. So, you know, we get oftentimes better training, um, better coaching. Um, but also I don't think Margaret Court took into the, into account the amount of pressure with the media mm-hmm. this day and age that yeah. the current athletes go through it, you know, social media, but also, you know, playing in front of record-breaking crowds, you know, breaking records on ESPN. I mean, the pressure is there for somebody like Serena and current day athletes. That is a great point. And I would add in social media. I would add in the trappings of celebrity. I mean, you know, Serena can't walk around in a tournament or go get dinner in in Manhattan. Um, You know, some of the old players say that. And they say, oh, you know, back in our day, we all had to pile into a station wagon. And now look at all these players. They all have their (laughs) own entourage. And I'm sort of thinking like, isn't that what you wanted? Like, isn't that exactly exactly what you said, Mm -hmm. Hope? Like, don't you want progress? Don't you want the product to get better? Don't you want more pressure? It would be really messed up if Serena had to, like, sleep in a bunk bed at a youth hostel at a tournament. (laughs) Like, you kind of want players to have luxury trappings and make millions of dollars. And, yeah, but I I think that's a really good point about pressure, that, um, you know, what Serena Williams has to go through is nothing like what players even a generation ago did. Uh, at the U.S. Open, we saw a ton of ce- celebrities just cheering her on from the stands. You know, the New York City mayor was there, Gail King. Let's see who else. Uh, I saw Hugh Jackman, Queen Latifah. There were a ton of celebrities, and that's got to feel great, of course. But, it, you know, it, like I said, the pressure amounts. And... I want to know your opinion on how you think the media has shaped people's opinions of Serena, because obviously she's gotten media attention from a very, very young age. I I mean, I think the media really went through this transformation along with tennis fans, maybe because of tennis fans, maybe tennis fans because of the media. But, you know, initially it was sort of like, here come these two sisters. They don't 
play like anyone else. They don't look like anyone else. They don't have the same pedigree. The dad is sort of, I don't know if you remember Richard Williams in the beginning, and he's holding up these kind of confrontational signs. And I think after a few years, the media really reconsidered. And, you know, especially I think that the tennis media that saw this day in, day out sort of said, wait a second, A, these two girls are really friggin' good. And B, they're really smart and cool. I think sort of the, the mainstream media that popped in was still a little hung up on the backstory and beads and the hair and, and sort of irrelevant thing. But, but again, I think when I say this is like, uh, it sounds really hokey, but it's, it's kind of a love story in that it was really prickly in the beginning. And there was a lot of friction in press conferences and other players were trashing the sisters and vice versa. And then everyone kind of started to get on with each other. And I think that, um, you know, the, the Williams sisters, they got to know their peers and their colleagues and they were really became very well liked in the locker room after a while. And there was, there was really kind of like a thawing and even a warmth. And I think that kind of trickled down to fans and, you know, you used to read, go back and read stories in the beginning and it's sort of like, Oh, the polarizing Williams family and love them or hate them. They're here to stay. And then I think pretty early on, at least in tennis, it was like, there's no polarizing, like, they're really good. They're really cool. They're great for tennis. And um, again, I mean, that scene the other night, I mean, this whole U.S. arena was like, the first week of the U.S. Open, it was like Serena's goodbye party with like a tennis tournament tacked on. Um, and I think that sort of goes to show how much things have changed and how comfortable everyone ended up getting with each other, which doesn't always happen. Yeah, of course. And then to, to the novice fan, um, I heard you talk before about the relationship between Serena and the tennis world and how it's changed from the early years to probably the last decade or decade and a half. Can you, can you explain or, or help the listeners really um, understand and, and I guess remember what took place back in, I believe it was 2001 when the, the sisters actually boycotted the Indian Wells for 14 years. Yeah, sure. I mean, th- there had been, in, in the beginning, again, I mean, this was sort of a shock to the system. And here come these two sisters. They're from Compton. They have beads in their hair. They have this kind of outlandish father who's making these pronouncements. It, it was a shock to the, you know, it's like, I, I think I wrote once, it was, it was like jumping in a cold plunge. Like it was like a shock to the system. Um, and then in Indian Wells, the, the Williams sisters started winning. Serena won her first major in 1999, Venus in 2000. Suddenly these two sisters are dominating the sport. And it's went from sort of this novelty act to like, whoa, these are our next champions. And then the story shifted to, it's so strange. These sisters are always playing each other. Does the dad, does he ordain who's going to win in advance? The matches aren't competitive because they're so awkward. Just the two sisters fighting it out. And at Indian Wells, this this event in Southern California, um, there was sort of ugliness where the sisters were supposed to play each other. Venus pulled out. The fans felt unhappy and really took it out on the sisters who, let's keep in mind, were like, teenagers at the time and there was booing and there were you know alleged racial epithets and the sisters basically said we're done and for more than a decade neither of them played this very prestigious event because of how they were treated and again that's what sort of what i'm talking about by by love story that 
both of them reversed their stances. And, and you know, if you if you know about Serena and Venus, they, they wouldn't do that lightly. Um, you know, once they're they're both women of strong convictions and they're both confident women. And I think it says something that they sort of felt comfortable enough to break their boycott and basically say, you know, we're willing to extend the second chance. And they ended up after, again, more than 10 years, they go back to this event. There's all this ugliness. There's all this ugly history. And the fans cheered for them and they played. And I think, again, it was kind of this another sort of recognition that everyone what had once been a story of sort of polarization had sort of changed into unification. And there was this really ugly incident, but enough time had passed and enough sort of good things had happened that the sisters reversed their stance. And when they went back and played this event after more than a decade, they were greeted warmly. Um, and I think that's kind of like a mic that sort of encapsulates, I think their relationship with tennis in general, there were frosty moments in the beginning and then quickly those sort of changed into absolute sort of adoring yeah that's that big love affair you were talking about i mean she but both sisters they they had to overcome just incredibly hurtful behavior and even accusations by fans accusations that their matches were fixed you know the booze and the racial undertones i mean it had to have been incredibly hurtful and and just it, it takes a very very like you said strong conviction and and forgiving human being in the end to go back um, and say, you know what, this is me. You can make judgments from afar. I know what I've done for the game. I know who I am. And I'm going to give you guys a second opportunity to, to welcome me back and to enjoy what I bring to the game. I think that took an incredible, incredible amount of really self-searching to get to that point and, and strength to get to that point. So that is one of the biggest reasons why I respect uh, both Williams sisters. Yeah, it was it was really graceful. And I mean the other thing that we haven't really talked about, but they dominate the sport. And yet they really had they they had friends on tour, they had players that played doubles with them, male and female. They really had and I, I say past tense, I mean, but you know, who knows? Venus is still out there and Serena's kind of left the door open a little, but they also really had the respect to their peers. And I think some of that was obviously just what they achieved. I mean, some of that, you know, you, Venus won seven majors, Serena won 23. But I think more than that, I think other players really understood what they went through. They understood that every match Serena played, it was like Super Bowl for the other player, right? I mean, Serena could never take a day off because the player on the other side of the net, this could be a career-defining moment. And a player like, again, like I Novak Djokovic grows up in you know, in the hills of Serbia, it's a rough upbringing. The, you know, the, the father, their stories of, you know, loan sharks are coming for the father. He gets it. He understands what the sisters went through as well. And I think that the fact that the other players were so, I mean, here are these two dominating players, right? And the fact that the rest of the league essentially was friends with them, admired them, like sort of approved of them. I think the fact that the other players were so cool with them, I think also trickled down to the fans. Yeah. I mean, you watch the U S open and Serena was matched up against, you know, very accomplished players. Um, and it, it didn't seem to matter if her opponent won or lost on that particular day. It was really more about the celebration of Serena and her career. Um, you saw all the very emotional scenes at Arthur Ashe stadium. <laughs> Is there 
any indication how her opponents actually felt. You know, this is a, a major tournament, the U.S. Open. They still want to win. They're professional athletes. They're competitive athletes. And here they are having to wait to watch all these celebrations of Serena. It, it, how do you think her opponents felt about it on that particular day? Um, it's a good question because I think it was a little over the top, right? I mean, it's literally <laughs> like, hope solo. And then you go out there and you're sitting there and there's like a video tribute to your opponent. And you're like, wait a second. Like, God, God bless Serena Williams. But, you know, there, there are two of us playing today. Um, I mean, I think the play, I, I think it's kind of player specific. And I'm trying to think the three players Serena played, I think were pretty okay with it and understood the weight of the occasion and it's her last major and she's American and but um yeah I think you could make the case it was a little overdone it's kind of like <laughs> save it for save it for after the match you know what I mean like trot out Queen Latifah's video montage once the match is over it's a little weird before but um I think the the three opponents Serena faced were very gracious yeah, it seemed to be that way. I think I'd get a little bit annoyed, to be honest. <laughs> but um, you know, you you don't you don't see Serena talk much about her opponents in interviews. She's very self-focused, self-aware. Uh, does Serena dish out much respect, outward respect, uh, to her opponents and her fellow tennis players? I know she has a lot of support, uh, but you don't see that outright show of respect. Why is that? Is she just very self-focused? So I'll tell you, I'm telling an old man telling stories, but when, uh, <laughs> when, when Venus Williams broke out in the mid nineties, Richard Williams was like, every, and everybody's thinking, Oh my God, this guy actually, this girl's pretty good. And Richard Williams says, he doubles down and says, you know what? I got another one at home. Who's just as good as Venus, but she's meaner. And everybody's like, wait, he's got another sibling and she's meaner. And I think there actually <laughs> was like something to that, that Serena, absolutely hated and hates to lose and she was really generous if she won it was oh my god hope played amazing hope's gonna win a championship one day it was an honor to share the court with hope and if she lost it was um it was less gracious and i think that you know i think sarita had inherent respect for other players i think she knew what they had to go through and the training and the travel and um but Serena after a win was much different than Serena after a loss. And I don't know if you caught this, even when she lost last match of her career, this sort of three-set loss on, on Friday night, it was a very sort of cold handshake at the net. And then she did an interview and she was like, oh, she trained harder. Like she was still very much in, darn, I should have won that match mode. So I think to, to your question, I think Serena had respect for the opponents, but I think that Serena never quite mastered uh losing gracefully which you could know you could argue that's what made her a great player i think that's part of her legacy you know um early in this episode i i talk about how she gave us all the permission to to win to be okay with being great to um she gave us permission to to be confident in who we are to beat the hell out of players and she also gave us the permission to be a poor sport to hate losing and, and I think that's part of her leg legacy. I think it's awesome. You know, right now we live in a day and age where everybody gets a ribbon, but there's a lot of great qualities that come out of winning. And sometimes we lose sight of that. So I think it's okay to be mad and angry when you lose, because that is what makes greatness. 
I think that's a good point. I think there's also it was always a weird sort of gender component to it, right? Of course. That with that with a lot of the men players, and you know, not just I mean Michael Jordan. I mean, go down the list. Maybe a great male athlete who didn't hate to lose and who didn't show emotion <laughs> and pump fists and. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think there was definitely sort of some, a, a, a gender, you know, a, a gender divide there. But, um, but yeah, I mean, so, Serena, there, there was no like, hey, I'm just happy to be here. Like, she was playing for the trophy. If she didn't get it, she was pissed. And if you didn't like it, she didn't care. So good, good for her. Amen. Okay. So as we turn the page a little bit, I wanted to talk about kind of the new faces. And I'm wondering if some of the new face, faces in tennis will be able to keep the excitement up. And I want to know who some of these new faces are. I think uh, I, I'm always I'm like reminded of um, this, this is like the NBA when Jordan retires, right? Um, there'll be new faces. Someone's going to win this tournament in a few days. You know, they'll, they'll keep holding big events. Do I think some other player is going to come along in our lifetime and win 23 of them? Probably not. Do I think someone's going to have this kind of transformational impact on an entire sport? Probably not. But, you know, there'll, there'll be a LeBron, there'll be a Steph Curry, there'll be a Kobe. Um, Coco Goff is, is only 18 years old and she's, um, you know, I mean, she she says, look, I'm, I'm a direct descendant. I never would be playing tennis if it weren't for Serena Williams. And I would put her at the top of the list of uh, sort of next gen players. But, I, you know, it's honestly, it's going to be tough. I think that you know, w- women's tennis is popular. Players make a lot of money. Like it's got a lot going for it. It's global. It's sexy. I mean, there's a lot going for it, but we're not going to see anything like the Williams sisters. And I think there's going to be a bit of a letdown, you know, it used to be Serena Williams and Venus Williams. And now it's some woman from Estonia whose name I've never seen before. I mean, I think tennis kind of has to brace for that, but they'll, you know, they're still going to have Wimbledon next year, Serena or not. They're still going to have a U.S. Open. They'll still be t- TV cameras and social media and i think that um you know you, you might have a core group of players like serena never really had a rival because she was so good so maybe the next look for women's tennis isn't one woman who wins 23 but six women who win four there will never be another serena it seems i was going to ask you what serena's legacy um really is but i think you've you've spoken a lot about the history and how far she's come and the love affair that that we all, you know, as Americans have with her and around the world. Um, it's clear that she has many le- legacies that she um, will be leaving behind. So I'm not going to ask you that question. Instead, I'm going to ask you what you think her next chapter will be. And if she doesn't play anymore, will she still be involved with the game? And do you think she's going to come out of retirement like so many great athletes have done in the past? Oh, man. Um, I'm, cu- I'm curious what you think. But I, I, I think like, the, I mean, the problem with tennis is that in other sports, you can, you know, you can be a six man or you can come off the bench. Mm-hmm. Or you can be a designated hitter. Like in tennis, you got, it's you and there's no downshifting and there's no like, yeah, we're only going to limit his minutes. And um, so I think, I think a comeback is really hard. It's just because at 41 years old, you can't half-ass it, right? You can't say like, I'm only going to play every other game. Um, so I don't think we see her again competing and then i think you know at tennis is weird like some players it's like they never left and their coaches and their broadcasters and they're still traveling to every event and other players are just like i'm out 
I'm never going to go to another tennis event. I mean, there's really a big range. Like Steffi Graf, I don't think has been to a tennis match in 20 years. And then you have other players where you're like, I see you more in retirement than I did when you were playing. Um, so I think, I think Serena will sort of be somewhere on that, on that spectrum. I'm guessing she'll show up now and then. I, I mean, I, I would be a pity if she completely sort of isolated herself from tennis, but I don't think she's, I don't think she's going to be a TV commentator and show up every week. Um, and then I don't know. I mean, she can do anything she wants to do. Um, you know, she, she's written about family and, um, expanding her family. She has this, this venture capital fund. I, I think, you know, she's got every option in the world. And I think at some level, uh, she'll, she'll figure it out. I, I think also, I mean, you know, this, it's like, it's easy to speculate when you're still playing. I think once she officially retires, and wakes up in the morning and says, what am I going to do today? I think, I think we'll have a better sense than now. when, you know, as of today, she's still kind of sort of a tennis player. I truly hope that she, that this was the last game <clears throat> match that we, we saw her play. Um, we've seen a lot of great athletes return to the field of play and it doesn't always go over well. And honestly, it's, it's, a, it's a struggle for, for many, not just physically, but emotionally and just not being as good as they want to be. And they can say it's for the love of the game, but we all love to be the best and to win. So to go back, you know, I have, a, I have great respect for athletes who take the time to make the decision for what's best for them and their family, ultimately make the retirement decision and, and to walk away from the game and to keep it that way um, and kind of let the new players do their own thing. And I think once that decision is made, um, it, it emotionally, I think it would be the best thing for a lot of great athletes. And as you said, Serena has so many projects. Um, for me, when I was fired from soccer, I didn't necessarily walk away from the game, but when it all took place and I finally was able to hang up my cleats, for me, it was about a complete lifestyle change. Everything about my life changed. And I didn't mourn soccer, which I hear a lot of mourning amongst players that have recently retired, especially in their first three years. And I never experienced that because similar to Serena, um, I changed everything. You know, I had projects. I, I started a family. I moved states. Um, and it was really just diving into my my new goals in life and my new dreams in life. So I, I truly hope she gets that um, and she can find happiness off the court. And I think she may even find more happiness off the court. I think that's really, um, no, I think that's really wise. And I like what you said too, about just sort of changing, changing it all up and just being like, we're going to shake the etch a sketch now and like move on to something else. I think it's hard when you're still there and you're still part of the scene and then you're like, well, oh, shit, I could beat her. And then, well, man, if I just spend another week at the gym, I could be, I think if, <laughs> I like I like what you did. And just don't even let don't even give yourself a chance to let your mind sort of ask the what ifs. Um, but it's hard. I mean, you know, you you have one. I mean, you know this better than anyone. But you know, you you have one in a, literally one in a billion talent, and you know that when you quit playing tennis, whatever you do next, you're probably never going to be as good at any one thing as you were at tennis. Um, it's easy to see why it's hard to give that up. Of course, it is. I wish I was the best in the world at something still. <laughs> oh, hey, thank you, John. Well, man, I took a lot of your time. It has been fascinating talking to you. And I, we had a wonderful conversation. So I'm truly grateful for your time on Hope Solo Speaks. 
Um, I think we can all agree that Serena was unbending. Um, and I bet from your perspective, it was an honor to cover her over over decades. It really was. And it's funny. I mean, now that she's retired, kind of, sort of, I guess I could say it. You know, we're supposed to be neutral and there's no cheering <laughs> in the press box. But you're absolutely right. It, it really, you know, we're supposed to be independent and objective. I can say it now. It really was an honor to uh, to cover this career. Um, but thanks. That was, that was really, um, I enjoyed that. Thanks so much. Hope to Sphinx is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcasts. SiriusXM Podcasts.